Great job. Thanks, Chris. Wow. Wow, that was a real blessing just with our worship team to gift us with that uh, this morning. So um, we're going to start off. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up now uh, to Genesis 2. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time in Genesis 2 and 3. It's going to be starting on uh, pages 2 and 3, so pretty easy to find. But go ahead and do so now um, so that we can jump in together. And just hold that place. Like I said, we're going to be mulling over a lot that is happening within those pages. If you weren't here with us last Sunday, we began a new sermon series spotlighting the body and examining its role throughout Scripture and what it means for us as we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grand story of God began with the creation of a body, the body of Adam. Now, ultimately, the story leads to the creation of a new body, the body of Christ. The second body is a figurative body, meaning all people who belong to Jesus. But we don't have figurative bodies. We have very real bodies. And if we pay attention to the significant role the human body plays all throughout Scripture, then we start to gain some clarity for how the gospel is experienced and expressed. The body has a fascinating story to tell us. So if the Bible talks about the body, we're going to talk about it. Last week we talked about how God intentionally created the human body not as formless spirits, but as material beings with physical bodies. Our story begins with God's thought of creating people like him, and then boom, the human body. A body that is sensitive to his presence, like a honeybee is extremely sensitive to where the next bunch of flowers are. Or like how an elephant can actually smell water from like 12 miles away. The human body was designed to have an extreme sensitivity to the spirit of God and all that flows from it, such as love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things animals are not concerned with. And with this sensitivity... Man is equipped, right, equipped to continue God's creative work of filling and subduing the earth. The world was once dark and void, but that all changed when God showed up and began to work. And the amazing thing is that God's portfolio of goodness and beauty was to be continued with us. Just as the Spirit of God created for six days, human hands led by the Spirit would create for eternity. And what was God's primary directive for making this happen? Gardening. Go ahead and put this up here. That's not the one we're wanting. 
But in Genesis 2, verses, starting in verse 8, it said, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there, east. That way. Perfect. Over there, God had planted a garden in Eden. And there, he put the man he formed. And then in verse 15, God continues to get very specific about his choices. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I love this. Their roles as rulers and subduers was going to begin with gardening. So I want to ask you, why? What's with the gardening? What good was it for God to begin Adam and Eve's story of ruling and subduing with gardening? What good was gardening to these two people? Anybody got any ideas? Quite baffling. <laughs> gardening. If you do it right, you're rewarded. So there's a right way to do it. Absolutely. Any more thoughts? Oh, here, Aaron. You're involved, but you're not totally in control. Ralph? Absolutely. And with gardening, it's a very tangible way of making that happen. Thank you. Rob, Rob, there you go. I think the uh, garden is kind of a real perfect metaphor for just kind of the beginning, middle, and end, like in the story, kind of like when something starts to grow, kind of birth, and then at the end of the season it dies, and then mm. the next season it, the next year it starts over again, kind of like you know, that generations of people. So I think that by starting with the garden, it's almost like you create a framework for telling his entire story. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. It is quite puzzling. Yet, it's important. With this visual, we talked about that last week. If it's a visual in the Bible, it's important. We must pay attention. And thank you all for those answers. That is amazing. What I love about this is that it's simple. They came from humble beginnings of dust. But now, they're standing tall, filled with the Spirit of God. And yet, it is God's desire 
for them to get their hands back into the dirt day after day and nurture and grow what God has created. That is a great picture for the body of Christ. That is a great picture for marriage. That is a great picture for parenting. That is a great picture for a lot of things. Now let's jump back in and examine what type of garden Adam and Eve were in. It says in... Goodness, let's get back in it. In chapter 2... Chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Now the Lord God had planted... Okay, put the man in there. Um, Verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's that tree. We'll talk about it. But first, pay attention to how the garden is described. All kinds of fruit, pleasing and good. The Bible always, starting now, is going to pair the scene of agricultural success with joy and security. When crops are growing, the people be happy. Right? And this garden is a picture of perfect joy and security. And now check this out. Now pay attention to this next part that we typically don't, you know, hardly ever read. We start talking about water again. Talked about water last week. Water shows up again this time. Scripture says that a river, uh, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden And from there, it's separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold in that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It winds through through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs through the east side of Azure. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We are given four rivers that flow from the goodness and beauty of Eden. And they pretty much take care of not just east, but pretty much all the cardinal directions. Cushes to the south, other places where it winds through, is going to take us north, east, west. And when you're given cardinal directions like this, where are these cardinal directions often displayed? If I handed something to you with the cardinal directions on it, what did I typically hand you? What was that? A map. A map. And if you're in possession of a map, what are you probably going to do? Travel. Go somewhere. Especially if we're talking about gold. (laughs) It's a specific map, right? 
It's a, it's a specific intention of God. The paths are mapped out for us to explore and continue God's creative work. And when Adam and Eve have kids, how much more ground can be covered with God's beauty and goodness? So when we take in this whole scene, this picture of God's family unit, we see God nurturing something very important in his children. He is creating a home of joy and security, all for the purpose of exploring outward with all the things they experienced and learned at home. That's good parenting. And in the, in the parenting world, what he is creating in his children, we call secure attachment. One of my favorite writers, uh, Christian psychiatrist, Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, explains it this way. Joyful relationships develop as parents attune properly to the needs of the infant in such a way that it fosters secure attachment. One of the fundamental aspects of secure attachment is the infant's enlarging sense of a secure relational base from which he or she can explore the world with can explore the world without the presence of safety little to no creative activity can ensue these are great words from thompson but even more impressive is that the hebrew language can boil that all down to one word Shalom. A shalom, a word meaning peace, wholeness, and well-being. God's people were experiencing this shalom. God's people are securely attached to their creator. They are tethered to a base. They are tethered to a base of peace and joy from which they can explore, discover, risk, face challenges, and create. That's what it was like for Adam and Eve. And if you break that down to what it physically and emotionally felt like, we see that answer given in verse 25, the last verse in chapter 2. This is what it was like. Adam and Eve and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. For us today, the Bible describes the human body as naked. This is the first time the, the Bible uh, uses this word, and when it does, it pairs it with another word, shame. Now, it's not the last time. This connection between nakedness and shame is a thread that weaves its way throughout the entire Bible. This specific picture of the human body is here to stay. It becomes crucially important when we view our Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. But on the onset of this visual, there is no connection. There is no felt sense of shame. And with that word, shame, 
we kind of know what it means. It's not very fun to talk about. We don't really know all about what it means. And it's my goal today to provide some biblical clarity on the topic because shame actually thrives in the realm of confusion and silence. To begin, we have to go back to the joy of the garden. One component of secure attachment is the setting up of boundaries, right? In this relationship, in this family unit, there are things that we are free to do that bring us joy and further connection, and there are things that we must not do because they could be detrimental to your life or our relationship or both. With God as the Father, it is short and sweet. In verse 16, he says, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from the tree, uh, free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's quite the family meeting. Now, who wants to play Uno? Not, not in, within this tone. It is a serious family meeting. Now, we're meant to wrestle with this image. You probably have if you read these first chapters of Genesis, just wrestling with this image of that tree. And oftentimes, wrestling gets frustrating. Like, what the heck is up with this tree? It's hard to wrap our minds around, like, what angle God was taking by putting that tree there. Like, why would God put it there if he knew what was going to happen next? Many valid arguments might focus on the need for free will, which is very true. But in my mind, this is just an honest and true manifestation of a specific attribute of God. The whole garden represents the character and presence of God in the natural world. So naturally, there's going to be something there in the garden, probably toward the middle, to represent his authority as the sole possessor of the knowledge of good and evil. Who defines what is good and who defines what is evil? Only God. A tree makes that super simple. There it is. Don't eat from it. My guess is that when Adam heard these words, a lot of them were within his wheelhouse of understanding. Other words might have been more of a challenge for him, maybe a little bit more abstract for him, such as evil or die. This conversation that God is having with Adam is actually a conversation of love where he is not sheltering him from reality, but he is cueing him in not only on the concept of good, but also on the concept of evil because there is evil. And the one we're about to meet next is evil. In chapter 3, we're introduced to the very thing God was preparing Adam for. Adam and Eve for Satan. This is the antagonist of good, the killer of joy and creativity. The Bible describes him like this. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And there's our introduction. There are many words that characterize evil, but as it, is, as it concerns us, crafty and subtle is of primary importance. Evil literally or rarely shows itself as evil. The true subtlety of evil is that it will disguise itself as good. And it takes craft and skill to do so. And the serpent seems to have done his homework on humans. He's not just winging it. He is cunning and calculated in his approach. And from what it looks like, he has one shot. One, co one conversation, one speech to tank all of humanity. And he's going to do that with precision. He waits for the right moment. When man and woman are experiencing a joy and security at the bodily level, this is where evil tends to disrupt things with its application of shame. As this narrative unfolds, we will examine a few noteworthy effects of shame in the human body. We'll break those hallmarks down, uh, break those hallmarks of shame down. But to sum it all up, it is a process of what's called disintegration. Shame divides and conquers everything from bodily sensations to imagination to emotional shifts to thought processes to behaviors and then ultimately overrides our secure attachment to loving relationships. To understand the effects of shame on the human body, we must look at this one defining moment in human history as it's presented in Genesis 3. The first crafty choice of the serpent, who to approach. As we follow along, here's what it says. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree, trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. A hallmark of shame in its early stage is the planting of a seed of doubt. Whether it's with twisted words or nonverbal cues, and here I believe we have both, security and assurance are called into question. We struggle to anchor ourselves in truth, and trust takes a big hit as the person actually considers, maybe I got it wrong. And in loving, secure, attached relationships, even the slightest sense of doubt can be dis distressing. But Eve appears to hold her ground. But what will the serpent say next? You will certainly not die, 
the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's another defining feature of shame, of evil's application of shame, accusation. Just moments ago, her world was one of security and anticipated joy. She knew God loved her, and she didn't have to wonder about it, just like she didn't have to think about breathing. But here we have evil's malicious intent to shear that off. With doubt already in her mind, he steps in and does what he does so well. And in short, the accusation is this. God is evil, and you're a fool. That old spiel about not questioning God, blah, 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 his authority, blah, or you'll die, blah, blah, blah. And you believe that? Wake up. It is good for you to be the holder of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is evil for God to withhold it from you. Now, I don't know if you have ever been made to feel like a fool, but it's quite disorienting. When your confidence seems to evaporate from your body and you're left feeling and looking stupid. I may have had the right information, but in the presence of such confidence and slick words, I can quickly default to a state of paralysis where I need to shut up and listen, no matter how harmful the words might be. This is where the disintegrating force of shame makes noticeable changes within the human body. Let me ask you, when you're experiencing shame, how easy is it to think? How easy is it to be creative? How easy is it to remember joy? How quickly, how easy is it to quickly run to our securely attached relationships? Eve doesn't. And this is what happened next. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. When shame finds its home in the human body and does its job, we will then graft ourselves to the thing that is promising us or offering us relief. And in such a twisted way, He takes on, the serpent takes on the role of security for Adam and Eve and nullifies the security that they had with God. He actually convinced them that God is not not good. And the only way for them to be sure was for them to trust him and take it upon themselves and eat the fruit. And when, the, and when that consummation 
is played out with bodily acts, it is bad news. We become evil. Here's what happens next. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When you comply with shame and act according to evil, that felt sense doubles back and intensifies, and you realize just how foolish you really were, how evil you can be, and how much damage you have caused. You realize you are naked. It gets to the point of being too much, and we have only one option, cover up and hide. Invite Kirk Thompson back into this to give us another take on this. Another feature of shame's presentation is that of hiding, whether it is with the shrinking into the silence of our own minds or the literal turning away from someone with a downcast facial expression with eyes lowered. Shame leads us to cloak ourselves with invisibility to prevent further intensification of the emotion. If you've ever experienced shame, you probably also have experienced the need to be invisible, to be small, to be unseen. That started here. So what is shame's effect on the body of Christ? People Hiding in darkness cannot continue God's creative work of filling the earth with beauty and goodness and light. The serpent knew this, and we must know this. And we must remember that this is not just Adam and Eve's story. It is the story of all of us. Each of us have encountered, has had an encounter with evil and has experienced the shearing pain of shame. Each of us has been confronted with our own nakedness, and we don't often respond very well. Evil has and will continue to leverage shame to bend us toward hiding in darkness. And many of us are stuck in that loop. Yes, even members of the body of Christ. So help me out. Because we see it. Within the body of Christ, what, think about this and help me out here, what are some signs of shame infiltrating one or more of its members? What starts to happen within the body of Christ when shame is felt and let loose? What starts to happen in this people group? What do we got? We start to notice people are isolating. They're starting to separate themselves 
from the body. Thank you. Not only is it important to hide, but then we'll start sharpening things and start jabbing back at people to keep the distance. We'll start blaming. Thank you. The original intention of getting light and beauty out into the world gets nullified because the consumption of darkness within draws our attention inward instead of outward. Thank you, Justice. Yeah, right here. Some people will try to overcompensate and go one up and have power. Absolutely. This distressing feeling of shame is not comfortable, so I'm going to pass it on to someone else. <laughs> so this feeling of shame is transferable. And if I get wind of that, I can use that to stop, put a stopper to this. Again, we don't respond very well to shame. And we don't typically respond well to people who aren't responding well to shame. You catch my drift. And within a state of communal disintegration, we are more likely to apply snake venom to the body of Christ rather than the healing medicine of the gospel. We do a pretty good job of identifying that someone's isolating, right? Oh, they're isolating. Oh, I know I'm isolating. And what do we have for those folks? Well, they shouldn't isolate. You should, probably shouldn't be isolating. Shouldn't, I, I know I shouldn't isolate. I, I shouldn't isolate. You shouldn't isolate. Yeah. They know it's a bad idea. <laughs> I know it's a bad idea when I isolate. Within my friend groups, if there are people who are isolating, they know. And the truth is, is that they don't have it within themselves to get them out of it. They need good news, not bad advice. And the good news that is in the body of Christ is that the good news within the body of Christ, both literally and figuratively, is that he has provided a remedy for shame. And it's not what you might expect. And we'll continue to talk about that remedy, but for today, just focus on just today, we can close by saying that it looks a lot like God's next move while Adam and Eve hid. We hide, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? The gospel looks like pursuit, curiosity, and truth. Now, if you're familiar with the story um, if you're familiar with this story, God did provide some unfortunate truth to Adam and Eve regarding their new normal. Now that they trusted the serpent and rebelled, things would be different. But for those who are in Christ, we believe the story that even in the midst of our shame and our sin, my friend Jesus is coming for me. Do those stuck in shame know that their friend is coming for them?
Friends that will pursue with curiosity and provide truth. And the amazing truth that we get to deliver to our friends sounds a little something like this. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul goes on to conclude that nothing, nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. And here we get nakedness as a marker for this time back in history where it all began with us, where shame is a very important thread that weaves its way through our story and what Jesus did to bring us the gospel. Nakedness will not keep us from the love of Christ. Shame will convince you that you are disqualified from the love of Christ, but in reality, it is exactly why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And he plays that out in a very embodied way. And when we see him on the cross, we'll get a very good picture of what he's going to do with shame and how he teaches us how to live in the gospel when we encounter it. <sighs> Guys, the story of shame has been something that by the grace of God, he has walked me through. Um, hasn't been fun. Um, but gaining clarity and experiencing the kindness of God throughout this, it has made me excited for the gospel and how folks can experience that, especially when the story of shame is so, so prevalent in our lives. Whether it be explicitly known or extremely subtle. It is important, and this is what excites me about the gospel, the good news to people who need good news. So within the realm of this bad news of shame, I'm going to give us a little bit of time just for reflection and silence, uh, just to do a little bit of what's this like for you? In regards to the story of how it uh, played out with Adam and Eve, how's it playing out for you? What do those bodily sensations feel like with shame? What does the imagination, how does the imagination, what does the imagination look like in shame? What is the emotions? What are the uh, thought process? What are the behaviors that kind of allow the serpent to really sink and use shame to bend us to where he wants us to be? The not trusting God and relying on that secure, attached relationship that we do have. So, what's it like for you? What's it like for you? I'm going to go ahead and close us uh, in prayer uh, so that we can have that time. And the band's going to come up and lead us in one last song of worship. We'll go ahead and pray. Father in heavens, thank you so much. It is in your loving kindness that... You do not shelter us from this reality, the reality that shame has an important role in the human body. The story is of unfortunate beginnings, but is of a glorious conclusion. So Lord, we just pray that 
in the midst of experiencing unfortunate loops of isolation and shame and sin, we do get a felt sense that you are coming for us. That we do know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, even our own nakedness. Lord, we praise you for just this opportunity to examine this, and we do pray that you will guide us as we experience the good news that you have for us um, as we encounter our own nakedness. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the people in this room.